Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 62 of... Round the Archives. The podcast that makes a present of the past. Okay. <laughs> you didn't know I was going to say that, I did didn't you? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We seem to have uh, ended up as a sort of quarterly schedule release at the moment. Yes. Uh, you yes. know, so, which seems okay. Yeah. Um, though, since we last spoke to you... Mm-hmm. We've been on the Shy Life podcast. We've yes. been on Vision on Sound, and yes. y- you've done the Cinematic Sausage, haven't I you? I have, as it's now called. Yes, we we'll say for me a raspberry movie and a footlong dog. Yes, indeed. Yes. But a uh, fair bit to get through for this one. Yes. So first of all, you and I are going to have a look at the life of Barry Cryer. <laughs> Joker's Wild, a game in which some of the country's top comedians meet to see who, if anybody, knows all the jokes. Let's get right down to business and introduce the teams. Firstly, at the top of the table, our resident captain, the one and only Mr. Ted Ray. <laughs> With his team, Mr. Ray Martin. Good evening. <laughs> Mr. Ray Cameron. <laughs> opposing them tonight, we welcome the opposing captain, Ted Rogers. With his team, Mr. Les Dawson. And welcome to Mr. Norman Collier. the game let me just say that each of our comedians will have to tell a joke on the subject that I produce in this box by pressing the button the member of the opposing team can interrupt the joke if they think they know it they interrupt by pressing their buzzer Ted would you press your buzzer please there we are and the interrupter can score and then we go back and see if that was in fact the joke anyway we'll play the game you'll see what it's all about we start with Ted Ray I press the button Ted and the subject is whiskey so Lisa Barry Cryer Mm. You've got a copy of his book on your Kindle, haven't I you? I have, I have. I thought I'd uh, try and do some research. Mm. I, I've sort of forgotten it all now, though, because it was a while ago <laughs> since I finished it. Uh, the one thing I can tell you is that his first professional job in London mm-hmm. was as a turn at the Windmill Theatre, the famous Windmill Theatre, mm-hmm. which is probably quite a hard job for a male comedian. I was going to say, he didn't have to jiggle on no, stage, he didn't have to did he? On stage. They didn't jiggle. No? They just had, they stood. Poses. They weren't allowed to move. All right. 
it must be quite hard because obviously the people well, let, let, let's be honest the men mm. that have come to the Wimble Theatre are not there to see the male comedians no that's true but yeah he, he seems to have got on quite well he kept getting called up to the proprietor's office Vivian Van Damme mm. or VD as they affectionately <laughs> called him to be given advice as to what to do in his act alright so you're good but if you do this and this and this and this but every time you went to see him he'd tell him something different so it was probably a bit confusing but yeah he he arrived in London with a a month's return back to um, Leeds I think it is he comes from originally and never went back he never used the return so but what struck me is that if you were playing a game of connections and you Mm -hmm. had to like connect two disparate people in showbiz yeah uh, if you said Barry Cryer, you mm-hmm. would almost certainly have a connection with two people, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, you could connect one person and another person. Yeah, because, yeah. c- I mean, you, you've just got the Morecambe Wise um, DVD, isn't it? Blu-ray yeah. or whatever? It's a, a DVD, um, DVD yeah. It's yeah. the Lost Episodes one, the, the ones that they discovered. Mm. Um, and there's a bit of studio soundtrack, isn't yes. there? Yes. From um, before they do the Andre Previn sketch. Yeah, and Barry Crow's doing the warm-up he for is. it. Yeah, he did yeah. a lot of warm-up. Yeah. Because other people have done that as well, obviously. Um, Felix Bonus yeah. did warm-up as well. So, And you've got to be a good comedian to do that because you need to get mm. to the audience to a certain point where they'll laugh a lot, but not too overexcited, I guess. Yeah. But it struck me that He's a very good host. Yes. Because, of course, he hosts um, Joker's Wild. Yes, which is quite a difficult show to host. Yeah. Because you've got a lot of egos. Mm. Um, to keep under to control. To keep under control. Yeah. Especially as part of it, you can because you can interrupt, yeah. sometimes you get an interruption and it's completely superfluous. <laughs> Just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> so. Though, watching those early episodes of uh, Joker's World, mm. it's amazing he survives, isn't yes. it? Because he only gets run, up, run over by the camera when yeah, it's doing the zoom in at the they front. They don't seem to have a zoom function on the camera, so the only way they can zoom in, as it seems to be, is the cameraman running up to the desk. Barrel towards him yeah. and then put the brakes on before they crash into his desk. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the sheer number of people you've got yes. on, on Joker's Wild. Because yeah. what, what's the connection with... Oh, Michael McIntyre. Michael McIntyre. Yeah. Uh, his, his father, Ray Cameron, mm. uh, invented it. Yeah. And he's one of the comedians on there as well. Yeah. But then you've, you've got John Pertwee appearing yeah, on there later John on. Yeah, a lot of people get yeah. people like... There's, there's one show where it's like men versus women. Yeah. Uh, and you've got Diana, Diana Dawes. Yeah. And you don't think of Diana Dawes. Obviously, she's done comedy mm. and films and various different things, but you don't think of her of being able to tell jokes. No. And we did. We watched it, and it was... It, they're in two episodes, aren't they? Mm. There's two episodes. I can't remember if we watched both or not. But I was kind of hoping it would be a little bit more... Not feminist, but yeah. a bit more not having to rely on women's Those jokes. early ones are very blokey, aren't they? They are very blokey, yeah. yeah. yeah and there's yeah. a lot of mother-in-law jokes and, yeah. why, you know, my kind of ugly wife jokes. Or my and, wife's a bad driver. And, yeah, yeah, and all that all sort of that. stuff. Yeah. But it's it's the time they were made in, so... Yeah. But then you've got, you got Les Dawson, you've got yeah. John Cleese, you've yeah. got David Nixon. Yeah. You know, you just, you just, again, just look through the IMDb yeah, listing for Joker's Wild. Amazing, the people who get on there. Yeah. So, uh, Sid James, I believe, as well. Yeah. But what, what I'm interested also in is th- there's a sort of lesser-known show, was it Those Wonderful TV Times that yes. he does? Yes. And With... virtually none of it survives. No. 
No, it's sort of like an early ITV version of Telly Addicts, but with celebrities all the time. But it's Telly Addicts with celebrities and and treating the subject matter with a bit of intelligence and respect, I think. And and some of the celebrities are better than others. Yeah. Lionel Blair was amazingly good. Yeah, Lionel Blair knows his telly. Or knew his telly. Or knew his telly, yeah. Yeah. But so did Barry Cryer, as it turns out. Yes. Uh, Again, he's a really good host for that. He is. Because he's really on sort of point with the with the detail of it yes he's very insistent on the difference between the three quatermass serials yes. isn't he <laughs> yes but yeah. there's a christmas special where norman yeah. vaughan comes on mm-hmm. and quizzes barry yeah and he wasn't expecting this to happen no, no but he goes with it and he gets yeah. virtually all of the questions right yeah. and is a is it on the Lionel Blair one? There's a yeah. clip from Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. Yes. And on Telly Addicts, they would just take the piss out of the puppets, wouldn't yes. they? Yeah. Whereas on this, yeah, dead serious. Yeah. It, it's it's a you know it's a proper TV show. Yeah. The fact that it's it's puppets is irrelevant. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I, I really like that, and I do wonder if more of that show survived. Mm. Would there be clips from missing episodes yeah. from stuff? Yeah, might well be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, missing ITV stuff, because it's yeah. mostly ITV stuff, isn't it? But Sergeant Court gets a mention. Yeah, gets a little clip. On it. Yeah. Public Eye. Yes. And, uh, again, it's convinced you that you don't like Jimmy Clitheroe. I really don't like yeah. Jimmy Clitheroe. No, <laughs> no, it's... it's Yeah, I, I, I still don't understand how a 40-odd-year-old man can make a living out of being a schoolboy. The good old days... Yes. So Barry on the good old days. Yes. Mostly being Scottish. Mostly coming on with his tam o and his yeah. kilt. Yeah, and a beard. Yeah. Yeah. And doing that joke, what is it? He asked for a tartan room and got both. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But he does do a thing with cribbins, yes, doesn't he? Yes, but they're sort of Mexicans or something, aren't they? Are they? But with they got, Yorkshire accents. They've got big sleeves, that's all yeah. I remember. I don't yeah. remember what they actually did. No, no. But again, you look at a good old days cast list. Yes. And yeah. yeah, and as for his writing career, oh gosh, yes, he writes for it's so every, many different it's people. It's everybody under the sun. Yeah, because I I hadn't realised. I don't know why. Maybe because I haven't seen a lot of it, but I hadn't realised he worked for Kenny Everett because yeah. it because it, Kenny Everett's comedy was for its time so anarchic and wacky. Mm. You don't imagine somebody like Barry Crayer writing it, but why not? But what's the story about? I I know people have said this the the thing that really good about Barry Cryer is that he never got to the stage of saying oh it was so much better in my day no no this he appeared on there was a panel show I think it was probably in the 90s uh, for one of the ITV franchises it was him and another writer whose name escapes me at the moment mm. and Stephen Fry and Ben Elton yeah so they're coming very much off the back of the sort of alternative comedy kind of thing and while they were preparing for it, one of the production staff sort of sidled over to Barry and went, you know they're setting you up here, don't you? They're going to sort of try and ignite a sort of row. Mm. So he told everybody else. What, between the old guy and, and, and the new boys? Yeah. So he told all of them, and they all agreed that whatever somebody said, they would say, oh, that's a, that's, yes, that's a good point. That's a marvellous idea. Yeah. So they didn't they didn't get what they expected. And he said after a while, the, the presenter just sort of, tore a script up and let it go so because <laughs> but i think that thing of having a lot of knowledge about the past but mm. being supportive of, new of, of, of yeah. you know current trends and new stuff is actually quite rare isn't yes. it yeah uh, it just shows you what a, 
open mind mm. he had. Yeah. The fact that he didn't think that anything that was made after sort of, you know, 1985 or whatever was bad. Yeah. That comedy is comedy whenever it's made. I just think that's a really admirable thing. Yes. And yeah. There should be more people like that, yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, he was a certainly um, a unique person yeah. in that sense, I think. But yeah, we, you know, it, it's again, it's a shame that some of this stuff just isn't really terribly available because no, even no. the Joker's Wild stuff it's no. only the early couple of seasons yeah I think it's just the first couple of seasons that are available are available so yeah because so, yeah. again I think he might be in danger of being a bit of a, a forgotten name maybe I don't know in, in some ways among, maybe amongst the sort of this is going to sound awful the sort of ordinary watching mm. public yeah but I think amongst people that really like television mm. and appreciate different things then yeah. he is I mean yes you know him for his writing extent. you s- sort of know him for his presenting and, yeah. and his comedy I don't know did he ever do any sort of real straight acting can uh, I imagine he'd be he, b- b- bloody good at that he did well. do a play yeah I think it was Season's Greetings alright one of the eight born ones that's okay. set at right. Christmas mm. I think it's Season's Greetings I, I'm I'm not quite sure, but and he, he fully admits to in his in his book to have been terrified and trying to back out of it at the last yeah. minute, and they were like, "No, Barry, you'll be fine," <laughs> and he was. Yeah. I mean, one one thing that I never knew about him is that he had dreadful eczema when he was he was a younger man. Right. So that kind of curtailed him going on the stage in a way okay. because the grease, the makeup, aggravated the eczema. Oh, really? Okay. Which meant that he couldn't he couldn't wear makeup, so he couldn't go on stage. He also used to write for Danny Larue, mm-hmm. so you can imagine kind of some kind of the lines that that would go down because it was for um, Danny Larue's show at his club, yeah, and it was sort of midnight onwards, so they could be as frank as they wanted to be, shall we say? Yeah. So yeah, the, the the sheer amount of stuff he had actually done is amazing and apparently if it was your birthday and you knew you'd phone you up and wish you a happy birthday and tell you a joke yeah i've, I've heard of about yeah. various people getting phone calls from yeah. barry cryer yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I would imagine that that that's been terribly missed yeah this year yeah since he since he passed on but uh, but yeah definitely hats off to, yes. to barry cryer yeah. just just an all-round bloody good bloke i think it does seem yeah. to be yes my name is Barry Cry. See you very soon. Good night. Good And now Michael Seeley's here to talk about Star Maidens.
Hello, my name's Michael Seeley and I'm going to talk about Star Maidens. Now this was a program I'd never heard of until I saw it in a, as an article in a magazine called Time Screen, which some of you may remember, which was an irregular publication about what we were pleased to call telefantasy back in the day. And it featured some early writings by one Andrew Pixley. Now I had the pleasure of sending in what, in the cold light of today, appears to be a stroppy set of corrections on a lovely article about Doomwatch, on the grounds that I had the fortune of watching the surviving episodes, and they'd only seen the one. Go, Michael! Judging by their article on Star Maidens, they had seen all 13 episodes, and I was fortunate not to have watched any of them. Because, judging by the article, it didn't really appear to be a very good series. Well, here we are, embedded into the 21st century, a long time since the 1970s when Star Maidens was made. And with me passing my half-century, I have now had the pleasure of watching Star Maidens in its entirety, and I now wish to make the following remarks, as they say in America. I was, I have to admit, worried that it was going to be one of those 70s sexploitation type adventures, you know, and that if I enjoyed it too much, I might well have to keep quiet about it. Was this programme going to be a dig at feminism, for example? written by middle-aged men who didn't believe in all this sort of nonsense and wanted their dinner when they got home on the table. Not on a plate, but on the table. Wife! Now, Star Maidens is a co-production between a German company and a British one called Portman Productions. Thirteen half-hour episodes, all shot on 16mm film. Very bright and colourful, a lockdown on location, made in English but with a language so simplified that I imagine translating it into German or any other European language for overseas sales would not present too much of a problem. Apart from the appearance of the police and a few signs written in English, this could have been any Western country that the series was set in. I have to confess, I came away from the first episode feeling that this was going to be as bad as I was dreading. But as the um, story trundled along over 13 episodes, which I watched about one a night, um, I, I started to get rather into it. And once you made an awful lot of allowances for it, I found it rather enjoyable. And I must say the thing I like the best of it, actually, is the theme tune and the title sequences. Lots of explosions, you see. You can't, you can't beat a good explosion. The premise is very simple. You take a planet called Medusa, where the women have risen up over the men and have taken control, creating a far more peaceful society. The men are now docile. They are subject to some sort of mind control. And they're divided into two different classes, slave classes. There are domestics, who have pretty blonde highlights in their hair, or manual labourers. So, after a period of peace and stability, the planet Medusa is knocked off its orbit by a meteor, and drifts around in space in a very Space 99-style manner, and the Medusans have to live underground. But instead of turning into Cybermen, the Medusan women have a nice, quiet and peaceful time, by all accounts, avoiding enemies in conflict the best they can. And they're all very slim, very good-looking, and mostly young. They must have had decent central heating under the ground on Medusa, because surely they would be freezing to death otherwise, especially the Medusan guards, for example. They're a humorless lot, which was probably owing to the hot pants which they had to wear, which frankly leaves nothing to the imagination. But this is not Planet of the Amazons, where they wear as little as possible, that sort of thing. As for the men, each handsome male has a blonde streak through their hair. That's the domestics, really. Or if they're working on the surface, they're running around wet sandpits, being watched, guarded and shouted at by very hysterical Belisha Beacons. Watch an episode and you'll see what I mean. Dressed in bright and orange-yellow suits and ridiculous helmets, I imagine the men felt too silly to even want to be seen down below. That is, below the surface of the planet and, you know, more. The Medusan planet comes close to Earth, and two male slaves called Adam and Shem decide to escape. 
They know all about Earth, apparently. The men are in charge, which makes it paradise for them, which is very um, apt, considering their names seem to come from the Old Testament. The leader of the pair is Adam, who's the French actor Pierre Bryce, Brice, and his colleague is none other than Gareth Thomas, in a very undemanding and underwritten role, the sort you wouldn't expect to see him do, because he's such an intense actor and he wants to be. It's only a few years since he played one of the leads in Sutherland's Law, which I want to talk about sooner or later. And Children of the Stones was either around the corner or just been done. Yet here he is, quivering with fear at his women masters. He's not a rebel leader just yet. Which is quite disconcerting to see. So they escape to Earth in a space yacht, where they plan to get police protection, thinking that the humans will understand their plight. And they are pursued by two Medusans. One is called Fulvia, played by Judy Geeson who expects to be obeyed on Earth as she, is, as she is obeyed back home. And she was the mistress of Adam, who thinks he's only run away because he can't cope with his love for her. And the other Medusan is my favourite character the whole lot, played by Christiane Kruger, Octavia, who's this very cold, cunning, calculating, but not malicious character. And they spent about five episodes pursuing Adam and Shem with the help from Earth authorities, which is in one case Graham Crowden. But normally it's Derek Farr, who, um, of course, he worked with Gareth Thomas again in Blake 7 as Ensor, the man who invented ORAC. But in this case, he runs a radio telescope place in England and he detected the space yacht coming to Earth and alerted the authorities that they were going to have... Uh, well, visitors from space, and no one seems terribly bothered by the, or excited by the event. It's, it's quite strangely underplayed. So, while Adam and Shem are on the run, two humans are selected to go back to Medusa, with the wonderful and menacing Octavia as hostages. Now, one of them is a highly educated male scientist called Dr. Rudy Schmidt, played by Swedish actor Christian, and I'm going to take a running jump at this, Quadflieg? Quadflieg? I don't know. And his bemused female assistant Liz, played by Lisa Harrow. So you can imagine on Medusa the roles are reversed for this couple. She enters into privilege, but kept under patient and suspicious observation, as the Medusans suspect she's still under the influence of men. And they're quite right, because she wants to get back to Earth and takes every opportunity to escape with Rudy. And they are not punished. They don't understand Lisa. And in one of the strange, strangest of the episodes, she is put under some sort of mind analysis machine to discover why she does not find Medusan men attractive. Their episodes on the planet become the more interesting of the ones. I was, I was, more, uh, I was quite enjoying the whole Adam, Shem, Flavia, Flavia, that's from The Five Doctors, Fulvia triangle in their episodes. But once we're on Medusa, things become far more science fiction. Rudy tries to whip up not so much resistance, as he's now a member of the slave class, but have his own intelligence accepted and recognised by a race of people who accept technology without question and have no aggression other than angry outbursts and the um, indiscriminate use of stun rays. So when you get to one of these episodes and there's a problem which the Medusans can't solve by themselves, there is a tendency to have the problem solved by Rudy with Lisa's help. And you are wondering, is this a sort of man triumphing over women ending or is it a human triumphing over Medusan intransigence? Now, some of these episodes tap into the voguish idea that blind acceptance of technology in day-to-day life could lead to disaster, and lack of aggression meant that they would not be able to defend themselves. And in one episode, human aggression does save the day. So, in retrospect, some of the stories appear very, very clumsy. 
You may remember the Blake 7 episode which tried to do the same theme of trust your human instincts over your computers, and you got the harvest of Kairos. With women, you are beautiful, fancy a snog. Well, the question wasn't broached, was it? He just gave us Servalan a snog whether she liked it or not. And typically, of course, she liked it. Now, the Medusans do not hate men. They regard their slaves as grown-up children who need guiding and kept away from violent impulses. The Medusans do not use their sex appeal on men on either planet. The queen, or president of Medusa, is another interesting character called Clara, dressed in an Arabian headdress, whose throw room is, of course, full of computer banks. And if you recognise the design as being reminiscent of Space 1999, that's hardly surprising, I believe they share the same designer. Dawn Adams plays Clara, and she is all-wise and all-seeing, and for one episode, mostly dead. And all the men are rendered unconscious, waiting for a new queen to be selected to bring them back to life again. This episode is called The End of Time, and it features Derek Farr on a rare trip to Medusa. A rare crossover episode, if you like. And guess who saves the day? He does. The Queen was only suffering from a virus. Isn't that topical? But it's another good Christine Kruger episode. Sometimes she is suspicious of the humans, other times she does try to defend them. The series does attempt shades of grey at times. For example, Shem and Adam save the life of Fulvia a couple of times. She, of course, thinks, oh, he's doing it out of loyalty, and because he loves her, he saves her life because it's the right thing to do. And in one of the more interesting episodes, Adam and Fulvia actually cohabit a life to see what life is like living on Earth. She goes out to work, and he stays at home and works his fingers to the bone, because he's a domestic. Of course, he does run away at the end of the episode. But it has to be said, Adam does have some sort of attachment with his domineering mistress, but he doesn't want to be a slave. Of the chaps, Gareth Thomas as Shem is uncharacteristically restrained, as I've already said, but in one of the more genuinely unsettling moments in the programme, the third episode, Nightmare Cannon, Adam and Shem hide in a stately home, but they are driven out of it into the arms of the waiting police by the eponymous cannon itself. This gives you nightmares, and they hallucinate. They see the faces of their mistresses in the paintings or statues, or even underneath the helmet of a suit of armour, driving poor old Gareth Potty and into the hands of the waiting police. Now let's talk about the writers. You'll notice they're all men. Three of the four writers are English, and familiar names too. Eric Pace created the programme, based on someone else's idea. Um, you'll recognise his name, he's the one who used to say Malcolm Hulk had the knack, and he co-wrote with him Pathfinders in Space, Mars, Venus, Target Luna. Malcolm Hulk did not write any of these episodes. Some episodes were co-written with John Lucarotti. While Ian Stuart Black did the episodes mainly, but not exclusively, set on Medusa. One of Ian Stuart Black's episodes is called The Trial, where he borrows from all three of his Doctor Who scripts, oddly enough. Now, in The Trial, the Medusans have put on trial Rudy, and the judge, prosecutor and defence are rather hysterical computer banks. There's also elements from the Savages, such as the hypnotising ray being reflected back onto its source via a mirror. And the Macro Terror, well, there's hypnosis and mind control. There is a German writer, one Otto Strang, who provides a couple of scripts, including the series finale, where Adam and Shem are coming home with Fulvia, and the hostages are being returned to Earth by Octavia, providing they both survive an encounter with a historical enemy along the way. And it all ends in smiles. The series does not take itself too seriously, and I'm sure it wasn't actually designed to try and make some sort of social-political point about the state of the human race in the 1970s. The special effects aren't anything really to write home about, the spaceships look nice and they sort of land more or less convincingly. The design of the Medusan city is very, very good. It's a multi-layered set and they use it in about half a dozen episodes. So they obviously got their money's worth out of that one. 
The dialogue is sometimes quite cringing, uh, rather wooden and simplistic lines at times. It reminds me of those foreign language education films you used to get in the 70s, trying to teach you conversational English. But the pace is brisk, and the cast occasionally slips in an English actor of note, such as Graham Crowden as a minister, or Ronald Fraser, he pops up, and Alfie Bass as a caretaker for a stately home in the Nightmare Canon. And the programme can be sinister, and it's not as exploitative as you'd expect from the 1970s. But as I say, it can make you cringe. I occasionally think the director doesn't quite know which way he's supposed to be pointing his camera. Who was the programme aimed at? I had a quick look through the British newspaper archive and saw that it was mainly shown uh, Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings in some cases, and Northern Ireland had it in the afternoons. So I imagine it's one of those programmes that was offered to various networks and they picked it up and used it as a filler. It was never networked at the same time. So there you have it, Star Maidens. A time capsule from 1975. Goodbye. Many thanks to Michael for that. Yes, thank you, Michael. It's nice to have you back. Indeed. Looking forward to seeing what he can do for us in the future, too. Yes. Michael's book, uh, Prophets of Doom, mm-hmm. that's his Doomwatch tome. It is. Is uh, available from Telos Publishing, isn't it? Is. it? Yes, and amongst many others. And uh, when it comes to books, mm-hmm. we've now got three books in the Round the Archives library, haven't we? We have, yes. All the work of Martin Holmes. Yes. So if you pop over to lulu.com, mm-hmm. you can find the Round the Archives cartoon collection in Volume 1 and Volume 2. Mm-hmm. And this huge weighty thing, the Round the Archives essay collection, which yeah. is printed versions of Martin's essays for us over yes. the years. Yes. And that's about 600 pages of... Plus a few poems. Of, and... of archive TV fun, as yes. it says. All sorts. All sorts. So definitely mm. have a look. Right. What's next? Paul and Nick mm-hmm. looking at... The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hello around the archives people, it's me, Paul the Shy Yeti. How are you doing? Um, I'm here with Nick Goodman again. Hi Nick. Hello. So uh, uh, this time we're going to talk a bit about uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, where, where would you like to start? 
Well, um, I well, uh, just as an immediate bit of background, I describe myself as a lazy hitchhiker fan in that <laughs> um, I've, I, I like it, and uh, I've even been to see the Sage Show, but more more of that later. Um, but I've kind of uh, I've never gone hell for leather on it like I have Who or Blake Seven or the Doom Watch, because I suppose um, there are so many different versions of it, and it's it's kind of trying to glue it together in a cohesive i i, I think the the the, the, lack, the sort of freewheeling structure of it uh or the lack the lack of it the lack of structure um is something that i uh, has always slightly distanced my, me from it but i do like it and i first became a fan uh when the the first series passed me by i don't, I don't you know I, I had no idea it was on that's is a radio show in 1978 um but the second series in 1980 um br- brought to my attention because by that time obviously i was a very keen on doctor who and the name douglas adams suddenly <laughs> got my attention yes and uh, it was about it went out about 10 or 11 at night it was it was a stupid time to put out uh, a, a something that might be quite fun and and have a a wider appeal uh, this was at the beginning of 1980 now my mum very kindly taped it for me and um she, she, uh, she it, it's so i was able to listen to it but because i suppose it was an unknown quantity i was i never actually i didn't actually get round to listening to it um until that's that summer where we went to st david's on um uh, on holiday and i took the tapes with me and i had a bit time to actually do it and I, I, I sort of right. I'm going to sit down. Um, sit on my, I had a bunk bed for the first time ever, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I listened to it, and yeah, I mean, I, I've got, I got, I listened to it and listened to it over and over again. I think I bought the book, which very confused me because it's an ad- adaption of the the actual first series, which I didn't at this stage know there was a first series. So yeah, I, I, I was missing episode two of series two, um, which so I, I uh, that was a. A, a want to to listen to. Uh, then, of course, they announced the TV series, which brings us into the TV archivey bit. Now, I was very excited about this. Um, I think by that time I twigged that there was what I was coming into was series two and not the first one. So I I hadn't heard series one at the time. Uh, so it was a completely. I came to the the tv show completely fresh in terms of how the story started there are uh, and uh it debuted in january 81 just over well they're over 40 years ago with some change i mean the the main character as you will probably recall is arthur dent the the earthling with the dressing gown and uh played both both times in the radio show and on the television quite rightly so by um, simon jones who has that wonderful english kind of awkward quality about him um ford prefect is his his pal uh is is actually played by two different people from the radio and the tv uh jeffrey mcgiven on the radio and david dixon on the tv and the change, I think, was quite a good one because Jeffrey McGiven delivers his lines with a bit more of a freestyle and naturalistic style. But David Dixon is definitely, having seen Jeffrey McGiven on stage, David Dixon is definitely the more particular, you know, he, he looks visually much more interesting in terms of, you know, a weird potential alien. Say for Beeble Brooks, 
uh, who's the, the, the alien cousin of Ford Prefect, both times Mark Wynne Davy. Although Trillian, I think, is Susan Sheridan in the radio show, and it's Sandra Dickinson, Peter Davis's wife, on the telly. So, uh, and I think it was a good adaption. Um, having, I, I suppose, I, there were certain things I didn't particularly have in my set in my mind, but um, other others did. I mean, I've, I've, it, the TV show divided people a little bit. I remember my brother-in-law at the time saying the only thing he he was happy with was marvin the paranoid android about that do you, do you remember the telly show at all uh um, it was... yeah i mean i i, I find it difficult to remember, to pinpoint when i first saw it i don't know if it was well sort of how long it took to before it was available on um on video presumably not into the 90s uh how was it re- in the 80s I, i'm just trying oh, yes, to think yes. yeah I, I might have seen the repeating <laughs> I have a feeling it was repeated. Was it repeated again in eighty one? Or I, I, I have a feeling it might even have been because uh, it was repeated in. Uh, it was certainly repeated in eighty two and again in eighty seven. But I, I have a feeling it might have been repeated in the summer. But um, so it, it was quite a regular sort of telly occurrence. Um, and also they they rewrote a few bits for the t- for the tv interestingly uh most of it was towards the end which seems to be being even on the radio and the tv seems to have been rewritten by john lloyd things like the dish of the day which is one of the most famous parts with the restaurant at the end of the universe in the penultimate episode of the telly show i i it's only when i go back to because i've been going i've not only rewatched the radio, the tv show but i've been re-experiencing the radio show whilst i'm in the mood because I, I have to be in the right mood for hitchhiker and the radio as it was a radio show that got me into the program in the first place i'm kind of i'm able to you know i it's that that i gravitate most easily towards um i didn't realize also also that there's an, an episode a christmas episode from 78 which bridges the two seasons and uh, it wasn't until they re- repeated the complete radio show just after the telly show went out that i kind of glued everything together that oh yeah, i see what you mean ah yeah they, and it runs <laughs> it as a complete yeah yeah i'm sure i'm sure would, i would have watched it at university um as, as you know but the listeners won't i i um i shared a flat with uh, my friend Kerry, who was a, a TV fan, and we used to—he also used to like radio. So uh, he'd sit me down, and we'd listen to Hancock or Round the Horn, or um, but also I'm sure we would have listened to the um, uh, Hitchhikers, and we probably watched it. But it's all a bit vague as to definite dates and definite, yeah. whether it definitely happened. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can remember sitting down with you, uh, with um, you and Kerry when I stayed over uh, uh, as, as a guest and we just sat down, uh, drank something nice, ate something nice and just watched telefantasy all night. It was, it was great. I mean, there's stuff I, I was into like, um, uh, uh, like, I don't know who or Blake. So there was, there was stuff I wasn't into like Star Trek and there was stuff that I was wanted to get into further, like Moonbase three, which we watched the, all the episodes I hadn't seen um so yeah it was a glorious evening he, he was certainly he certainly introduced me to quite a few things that night but uh yeah i, I think with hitchhiker yeah i mean it's i having i enjoyed the, the 
uh, although the t- the radio show is always going to be the my preference because I I just think the ideas flowed a bit a bit easier out of uh, you know it, it was obviously you didn't struggle to present a certain thing although uh, I think the radio sh- the TV show interest you know I was pleased enough and the the rather good graphics as well which were quite yeah I rather enjoyed the book graphics um, I was having sort of a set right that's the first series uh, now they're going to do the second series you know I, and um, uh, Mark Wynne Davy was on Ask Gaspel and they, they, they he was saying about this, oh there's, we're going into production with the second series I thought great because it was the second series that really got my interest you know sort of hooked me and i was particularly keen to see because i had no set with the first series i had no set image about what things were happening because i hadn't at that point heard the radio show but with the t with the second series yes I, I was very keen to see how they were going to do that and i was very very disappointed the following year where they they didn't have the second series but they just repeated the first nice as it was to see the first series again no it was it wasn't quite what i was you know i thought no, it was second series and i i found out years later it just got it was just too expensive apparently to do so that's why it never materialized but um which was a shame because it was worthwhile and the good that even though it has to be said the downside of hitchhiker on on the tv was uh it got you know it, it was the thing that killed off the goodies and which is a shame because i thought the goodies actually some programs kind of get give you diminished returns when they go on and on for years goodies i thought the scripts were getting better and better all the time so i yeah i was but the other yes going back to the changes of um in the in the yes towards the end there's a whole storyline added that isn't in the radio show about hot black daziado who's the, the the big pop star and they steal his ship and they it's about to crash into a sun and that that's how they they get rid of marvin or whatever and then they, and, and then it carries on into the, the where they they pick up by a spaceship which then crashes onto primeval earth and it ends with primeval earth so basically the beginning uh, sort of halfway through the restaurant at the end of the universe to the middle of the last episode it's very very different from the apart from them walking off with the spaceship on the uh, the car park at the restaurant at the end of the universe it's it's more or less the same it's more or less completely different because uh, it's a they steal a warship in the and it's and they uh, and they're, they're about to go into a battle and um Seyfold and trillian and and marvin don't get out and don't get out of the ship and there's the first series ends with them being eaten by shape-changing monsters and uh whereas with this one they, they on the telly they they zap off and you don't know what's happened to them um obviously they get out of that situation in this radio show but um it's interesting because if they had made a second series they would have had to contrive a reason for you know they they would have had to contrive a different reason because they they'd sort of written themselves away from the the uh the original radio show and they did of course eventually make the movie, although that was in development hell for for years and years, for, uh, oh, from what I can it? tell. But because uh, um, <clears throat> I'm sure it was. I mean, yeah, I'm sure because I'm, I'm sure Douglas Adams was involved in it, and you know, or, uh, whilst he when he was still alive. But obviously, he uh, didn't. Yes, 
he died before it was made anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a great shame, that, because it would have been a great thing for him to have actually seen on the screen. I I don't know quite what went wrong there, because it, it was, you know, it was big enough to have been done in the 80s, I think. Um, but for some reason, I don't know whether it was Douglas getting the better deal or keeping creative control over it, but, yeah, eventually... Uh, the one with with Martin Freeman. I thought it was all right. I um, it's difficult because it was it needed to be for the for the, the the worldwide audience, and yet it was something that was very British. And you 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 had to keep that without jettisoning, you know, without alienating the uh, uh, the American audience or the you know the wide. And I think they they, they I've never actually owned a copy, but I've seen it. And uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I'd, I'd like to. Wouldn't mind giving it another spin at some point. But yeah, uh, I, I, I did quite. I did quite like it. I feel like I might own it somewhere, or, or I certainly saw it at the cinema, but I haven't seen it since. Um, so I guess we're talking. I don't know, fifteen years, or I don't know how when it quite what year it came out. But uh, yeah, it's not not for I think not, not quite a while ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to the point where I thought, uh, is it just going to be too effectsy? Because I, I, my first memory of Hitchhiker, apart from the big thumb on the Radio Times and the fact that it was, oh, it's written by Douglas Adams of Doctor Who fame, was, I think they had a clip of the, the, for, uh, one of the episodes of Series 2 on Radio 2. And I suppose Mum takes it for me because I liked Douglas Adams with The Pirate Planet. But um, also, I mean, he, I don't think she was quite, until I got into it, I don't think she really kind of bothered with it much and uh, left, just left the tape running. When, and um, But uh, I think she kind of, I remember her disparagingly saying, oh, it's just an excuse for some special effects. Uh, whereas I think later on she, she got interested in, you know, she liked the show, she liked, particularly liked Marvin. It's my rather tragically, my dad was a bit like Marvin. You know, he got a very, very negative, very kind of. <laughs> um, so you know, we 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 did think, we did sort of look at each other and sort of say, "This is Marvin, basically." That was in the eighties. Bless his heart, when he was having a nervous breakdown. So, but no, um, uh, it, it. I think my favourite character would have to be Zephyr Bieberbrooks, the uh, sort of because he's just so entertainingly up himself and cool dudes and 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 uh but i think the person i i have the greatest sympathy with is is uh arthur dent because he we've all felt a bit that we've always been in that situation where we felt awkward or something and and there's the bits where re re-listening to it particularly the bits where you you, you could see he's grasping what's going on or he's trying to tell the others a, a perfectly logical point you kind of end up cheering him say yeah good on you you know you've, you've, you're, you're getting there you know you're getting you're getting the hang of this space stuff yeah. um, <laughs> do, do you think marvin was an influence on any of the or like slave in blake seven or because he was quite, quite, quite <laughs> i never thought of that uh, yeah, yeah i mean he, he, i do one yes i mean i i know i never never once thought of that i'm not sure because i don't know quite what Chris Boucher thought of because uh, uh, Slave very much Chris Boucher creation, but uh, I because it's difficult that one because at the at the same time as Hitchhiker was being developed, so was Blake. So and I think Aura 
was definitely created long before Hitch, you know, was in the planning stage long before. So robots or uh, computers with a, with a definite personality was something that Blake Seven had kind of pipped them to the post. But maybe, I never, it's not something I've never kind of thought of yeah. before. But yeah, maybe Slave was a little bit, I mean, whereas Marvin was quite hostile to, you know, was, was kind of uh, miserable hostile, whereas Slave was obsequious, you know, and not, I'm not worthy, you know, kind of. Uh, but so uh, there's a subtle difference. But yeah, I mean, it's quite possible that... Uh, that maybe I even unconsciously on, on Chris Boucher's part, you know, the, you kind of went a little that way uh, I, in computer I, personalities. I haven't watched it for a while, but I always felt that Slave's obsequiousness was a bit uh, slightly tongue in cheek. If a robot can have a tongue in cheek, like he was almost being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. but, um, yes, you are correct as always, Master. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, um, the the fact that when he's he's dying uh, at the end, you know, he does actually say Tarrant rather than you know, you know, kind of uh, hope you're all going to be right, Tarrant. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a nice thought that he could be tongue in cheek. Um, <laughs> again, it's it's one of those it's one of those kind of things that is is left in the air and it's quite nice for the audience to to sort of think oh yeah but um, uh, what but, else but yeah as i say to, to sort of wrap up um you you've uh you you would say out of the book the radio and the tv you'd go to the the radio series first radio i would yes uh books i I quite like, but they are a bit of a mess because if you've been following the TV and the radio show, there are differences with the TV and radio show. The the the, the, the books are completely scattergun. I mean, Restaurant at the End of the Universe is probably my favourite because that's the one that adapts most from uh, series two. So, uh, and series two is is my favourite of, of the lot. But he, oh yeah, there's, there's there's Hitchhiker books I haven't actually read yet. I've read The Cricket Men and I've read Restaurant and the first one, but I think there's some others. So long and thanks for all the fish. I kind of, yeah, I um, if I saw it secondhand or something, I probably wouldn't. I might not kind of go to the extent of perhaps looking for it on on Amazon. Or maybe I will. Now I've rediscovered Hitchhiker. Maybe maybe I will. But uh, yeah, the the books for me are, were the the thing that wobb- wobbled. The, the ladder a bit for me on, on um, not because they weren't entertaining, but because of the sequence of events. You think, oh, I can't compute them with a, a sort <laughs> of a a, a a slightly methodical mind that I I have. I, mean, I maybe, but maybe that was more younger me. I don't know. Maybe I'd enjoy them more now. Yeah, I, I actually thinking about it, I'd quite like to go back to the books. The the other radio show was the the one based on the oh life, the universe, and everything. I think the one with the ring pool on. Yeah, that was that must have been recorded before it went out in the noughties. and I, it was it went out a few couple of years after Douglas Adams died, and I think. I, um, I tried to catch it live, but in the end, I, I sort of, <laughs> I thought, oh, no, oh, it was on. Oh, no, I've gone. And in the end, I ended up getting the the, the box set for, you know, the, the radio. But Douglas Adams is actually in it, so it must have been recorded uh, as playing a minor part. So I, I think it must have been recorded before. Well, obviously, it must have been recorded before he died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you must have been recorded before he died. Um, but. Um, yeah, that's quite nice, actually. He's, he's quite a good actor as well. He's, he, he plays the part quite nicely. <laughs> um, 
and it's just like Joanna Lumley's in that as well. Um, it's got absolutely nothing to do with uh, you know if you tried to link it up with the the uh, the radio the previous radio shows you've been you be in a lot of trouble <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but no it, it's so yeah Hitchhiker brilliant piece of sci-fi and um, very much uh, in turn with the 80s thing of, of turning around and, and um, the mocking having sci-fi humorous like Red Dwarf and uh, although it's it's a lot it, it brings a lot more to the table than Red Dwarf <laughs> um, but no great great stuff but I have to be in the right mood I think that's but uh, yeah it's got I, I just remember that that's holiday at St David's in 1980 sitting on my bunk bed and falling in love with it and as I say that love has waned from time to time but it, it, now and then it as with this last couple of weeks with the radio I've stuck it on on my day off and uh, it's just a, a pleasure to experience it again well thank you very much Nick for uh, sharing, sharing your memories and uh, uh, thanks for listening listeners and we will hand you back to Andrew and Lisa and we'll speak to you again soon alright bye for now bye bye thanks to paul and nick for that yes thank you uh, boys paul shy life podcast comes out multiple times a month he does and it does one or other of us are sometimes to be heard on it yes, aren't we we are you you had an adventure didn't you the I other did. day when you traveled through time and space with I some did. jam with some jam yes. <laughs> and you met henry the eighth i did yeah i did yes he ordered my jam yeah but yeah if you've got to find out that you'll have to listen to the episode but to round off uh, you and me will take a look at the life of Peter Bowles. I'm H A P P Y. I'm H A P P Y. I know I am, I'm sure I am, I'm H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am, I'm sure I am, he's H-A-P-P-Y. And so Lisa, for our final piece, we're mm-hmm. going to look at uh, the late Peter Bowles. Yes. He's uh, somebody that's been in everything really, isn't he? He has, he has. He's got this sort of, um, he's known for slightly caddish parts yeah so parts like richard devere into the man of born or um archie i'm not sure what his surname is in um only when i laugh yeah but he'd done so much more you know he's been in lots of different things well you you showed me a, a few things that i didn't really know because mm. i didn't i didn't really know the bounder 
No. Uh, but I that, mean, that's quite a similar part to the other parts. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that that's also written by Eric Chappell, yes. like Only When I Laugh, and indeed like Rising Dam, yes. in, which he stars as the actor Hillary. Yes. He's, he's very much an actor in he that, is. isn't he? What was the the uh, the one that you surprised me with, the historical thing? Oh, The Shadow of the Tower. Shadow of the Tower, because yes. you've talked about that uh, for Vision on Sound, yes. haven't you? Yes. So, but what, so, what's he doing in the shadow of the tower? Well, it's uh, I, I, if I explain a little bit about the shadow of the tower, so it's it's completing the sort of Tudor trilogy, yeah. really. So you've got the um, Six Wives of Henry VIII, Elizabeth R, and then in 1972 they did the Shadow of the Tower, mm-hmm. which is all about Henry the Seventh, and it wasn't quite as successful as the other two series, possibly because it doesn't have all the sort of multiple marryings of Henry VIII and it doesn't have the whole sort of will she won't she thing of Elizabeth R and and Henry VII although he was a good king and he he produced a stable kingdom he's possibly not the most exciting Tudor monarch Peter Bowles is uh, in an episode that deals with a plot to kill Henry VII so Henry VII isn't actually in it that much it's very much the comedy episode it's very much the comedy episode of the series Yes, um, and he's... Because he's got John Junkin, is that? John Junkin is an astrologer yeah. with weird teeth. And he's, yeah, he's sort of playing this French character, Peter Bowles, with the most outrageous accent. It's a real clue, though, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. Well, actually, it's almost a real, you know, um, I can't remember, the Monty Python thing, and, you know, your mother was a whatever it is. Oh, a hamster, and your yeah. father smelled of elderberry. Yeah. But... It, I think he's really having fun with that he is. part. Yeah. Because I do yeah. wonder sometimes how much he got fed up mm. with playing like the same sort of posh parts. Yeah. But this is before that. He mm. doesn't actually start to play the posh parts until he does Richard Devere. Yeah. Before that, he was very much playing villains mm. in thing in various ITC shows. Yeah. Uh, he's in the Persuaders, he's in the multiple Avengers. Yeah. He's in Space nineteen ninety nine playing Baylor, the most evil man in the oh, universe. Oh we saw that and he's got enormous sleeves he has. in that, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah. It's it's quite a good part, but I did wonder you almost call them space sleeves because they're like, yeah. like, like sort of big wizard sleeves, yeah. aren't they? And I imagine if you had like big wizard sleeves um, if you had to go to the loo, because mm. they just they just drape in the toilet, they would wouldn't drape they? In the toilet, yes. A- a- unless on Moonbase Alpha, they've got some sort of special space urinal that sort of you know if you it would suck you. Up. No, I don't mean I don't mean <laughs> suck you off. I mean it would like suction. <laughs> it would get the drips off. It would off. get drips off. Yeah, Otherwise, so everywhere he went, there'd be a little sort of... They'd be trail. drips. You could yeah. follow him. Yeah. They would have lost him, would they? They'd be where he'd be. As Warren Orr says to me, more than three shakes is an offence anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, I have to say, we did think about doing To the Man of Born mm. once, didn't yes. we? Um, but I don't think we're ever going to do it. No. Because I watched it the first couple of episodes and mm. I realised how much I dislike... Audrey Forbes Hamilton. Yes. Having lived in a village like mm. that, it's it's a she's she's terribly racist and classist. Is classicist a word? Classicist. <laughs> yeah, she looks down on those that are lower. Yes, and and she regards him as as although he's rich, he's still not cultured. Well, he's basically, from trade. Yeah, yeah. He's a self-made man. Yeah. So. He's, in fact, he's earned his money. He hasn't just yeah. inherited it. And, you know, magnificent as uh, Penelope Keith is in the part, I think mm. the actual character of Audrey 
is and I'm going to say it now she's as bad as Alf Garnet yeah. but worse because mm-hmm. she's entitled she, she's she's higher up the social scale yeah. and she's got this this huge sense of entitlement yeah so I, I, I couldn't get on with it no. I mean I know it was popular in its day but mm-hmm. coming from that village background and being definitely one of the oiks <laughs> she she would look she you know she wouldn't spit on me basically so yeah but but he's very again he's very good and he's he is. very likable isn't he, he? Is. Yeah. yeah he's by far him and and um his mother yeah are by far the most likable characters yeah marjorie's okay but she's she's a, she's a bit wet mm. really isn't she but um, he's also rivals of Sherlock Holmes, isn't he? Because yes. he's in was it the woman in the, in the Wo- big hat? The woman in the big hat, written by uh, Baronet Zorzi. And it, it, is, is he the slightly bumbly Policeman. inspector yeah. in there? Yeah. Yeah. That one's a great episode for the fact that the, the it's a female dete- a lady detective. Yeah, and and she's strong. She's not. She doesn't need a man to help her. Yeah, um, you know she's perfectly capable of looking after herself. So it's a, it's a really good episode. For, for women, for female characters, really. Because I think probably 95% of the cast is female, isn't mm. it? I was just going through his list and I'd, I'd forgotten um, he was in uh, Bless Me Father. Yes. In the Doomsday yes, Chair. He's, the he's one the with, Republican. The, the one yeah. with the cursed chair. Yeah. I'd, I'd totally forgotten that. <laughs> and then the, and you said there's the Tales of the Unexpected as well. Yes. Neck. He's, neck. He's in the episode where Joan Collins puts her head through the um, sculpture. Yeah. And and the I think the last scene of it is is it John Gilgood he's the butler mm-hmm. and he he's got like a chainsaw. Oh right, okay. And then it, it fades into the credits and you you don't know if he's going to chop the sculpture up or chop off her head. Yeah, I think he's going to chop off her head because he doesn't like her anyway. So yeah, because you you knew the bounder, didn't you? Sort of. Um no, no, not really. Because no, what I was the one that you you said executive stress? Executive was it? stress, which we yeah. didn't actually get round to watching. But he's not in it from the start, is he? No, he's in it from series two. So Jeffrey Palmer's in series one. Yeah, and he's in it from series two. And again, it's Penelope Keith, mm. and she, she is um, a, a woman who's had a family, and she goes back to work and ends up as his boss. And they end up working together, but then you're not supposed to have married couples. So she goes back under her maiden name. And then they have to keep it secret mm-hmm. that they're married. Right. So it's the only reason I thought we'd be interesting to look at is it's a slightly it's not like amongst the top rated sitcoms. It's a slightly sort of standard ITV eighties sitcom. Yeah. We will watch it at some point. But of course, he was also up for the part that um, Paul Leddington plays in The Good Life, Jerry. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. Oh, I can see that sort yeah. of working because yeah. um, he and Richard Briers were acting in a yeah. play together and he, he I think he was offered he was to go up for it on the part and he said he couldn't do it because he was he was doing this play yeah and Richard Bryce comes in and says oh I'm doing this series The Good Life and hmm. um, Peter Bell says well how could you do that if you're he's like because well, we film on a Sunday dear boy You've got Sundays <laughs> off so he could have done it but by the time he got round to that uh, Paul Anderson yeah. had been cast because he's so. in Magnum for Schneider the, yes. the pilot yes, he version is, of Callum. He's yeah. actually, he plays the part of anti he's, he's, he's Toby Mears, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's in The Prisoner, he, yes. A, B and C. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you just look at this list and it's astonishing just yeah. just how, how much there is. Cause... I think people forget that he's in the first episode of Survivors. Yeah, because Martin made that point that he's yeah. in Survivors and you think he's going su- gonna to survive, yeah. if that's the word. Because he's a bloke, and he's, yeah. he's 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 pretty famous by this point. Well, isn't he? yeah, 
he would probably be one of those faces. I don't know if he's he quite is, is, got is, to the is phone. Is he still on the sort of I, I think guest star yes. sort of thing, isn't I think he? Yeah. He's, at this point, he's one of those he's faces not... that you see a lot on television. Yeah. So you probably would expect him to survive. Yeah. He doesn't really hit the high levels of fame until he does to the Manor Ball, and that's not till later in the seventies. Yeah. Because he was actually 41 when he, he got Yeah, because 1975 alone, Public Eye, Thriller, Survivors, Churchill's People, oh God, Co- Comedy Playhouse and uh, Space 1999. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, 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 that's not a bad set of credits just for one no. year, is it? No. He actually got some fan mail. There's a story about his Space 1999 because, um, yeah, obviously, he, he plays the most evil man in the universe mm. and that. And he, he got a telephone call from the studio saying, um, we've got this package for you. Would you like to come and collect it? So he goes to the to the studio and there's this huge package that he just about managed to jam in the back of his car. Yeah. And when he got back to his house, he opened it and it was a somebody painted him as Baylor. All right, okay. But the woman she it was it was an American fan and she was slightly obsessive. Shall we say? Okay. And she wanted to have his babies and things. <clears throat> okay. So yeah. Have we got Hadley? Because yes. that, that, that's one of his. We have. That's of, um, Gerald Harper. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of his sort of earlier. Yeah. Earlier things, isn't it? But again, I'm just going through the list. Lytton's diary. I don't really know. Yeah, we've got that too. Yeah, but we have, we yeah. have, we have got that. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd forgotten he was in Poirot. Yeah. Yeah. So you know things like that. It's. Um, Sarah Jane Adventures. Yes. Uh, Citizen Khan. Yep. One episode, I think. Brian Pern is yes. Brian Pern's father. Yeah, I, I've not seen that bit. Yeah. And he's in Victoria as well. He plays the Duke of Wellington with, with false nose. Have you I think. Did, did, did I've you seen, seen those that. episodes? Yes. Yeah, I don't, yes. I don't remember seeing that. Um, that's quite early on in mm. the run. And uh, apparently, he was terribly nice to the writer because they let her have a small part. Yeah. And because soon as she wrote it, she then forgot all her lines and she said he was, he was terribly nice to her and helped her sort of calm down yeah because so, what what what's the name of the book you've got ask me if i'm happy so that's his autobiography, that's his autobiography written yeah. in the sort of late 2000s yeah so it's yeah. 2009-ish did that teach you a few things it did um it taught me the fact that he wasn't actually born to a privileged lifestyle because hmm. his father was a he wasn't, chauffeur he wasn't posh what was no. it his, uh, he, he was the son of reginald bowles mm. and he was chauffeur to drogo montague yeah that's a hobbit, isn't it? Drogo. <laughs> yeah. Son of George Montague, the ninth Earl of Sandwich. Yes. All right, okay. Yes. Yeah. And they lived on the estate um, for the first couple of years of his life. And then when the Second World War happened, um, his father went to work in the Rolls-Royce factory um, in the Nottingham area. So they went to live in Nottingham, which was, was probably, you mm. know, not the most sort of so, easy place so he had to sort of learn how to be posh did he yeah he went off to um rada and they sort of taught they rubbed his you know they like they do they they taught him to speak rp mm. and then he went back to nottingham for christmas uh and worked in the sort local sorting office and got sacked because none of the people men wanted to work with him because he was too posh <laughs> oh that's they, but, they thought he was looking down on them all right okay because of the accent yeah yeah, putting it on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think literally just saw he's some posh idiot mm. that's come and is is patronising us by why he's working here. Yeah. And I don't think you know he didn't. He was that was his accent. That's the accent he'd learned to speak with. Yeah. 
And I, I know I said I didn't, di- didn't get on much with To the Man Born. Mm. I quite like Only When I Laugh. You're a bit less keen on yeah. it, but you said that's because you spent too much time... I spent too much time visiting people in, in hospital, a, in hospital to be yeah. entirely happy finding that situation funny. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I, I remember the Irish RM. I wouldn't mind reviewing some yeah. of those at some point. He was offered that and then it all fell apart and then he got offered it again. He came up with Perfect Scoundrels with um, Brian Murray, I think it is, from um, Irish RM. Yeah. Because he was out of work. Okay. He'd learned by this point. He'd come up with ideas before. And he said, the thing is, if you've got an idea, you should write it down. Yeah. Then if somebody else claims it, you can show them the original bit of paper and say, now look. Apparently Perfect Scoundrels has got Lulu in it at one point. Okay. Okay. Well, well, yes, but so has Adrian Mole. Yeah. So, yeah. He did do a bit of acting. But yeah, the band was was quite interesting. Although mm. I, I noticed on our DVD, the tape of it seems it to be in awful, a right yeah. old state yes, with it all was. dropouts. Dropouts and and screen was flaring. Yeah, and... but do you want to explain quickly what that is? That's, that's um, George Cole, Cole and Rosalind Ayers. Yeah, and he's he's George Cole's brother-in-law, and basically he's a sort of swindler, isn't he? Swindled and he's just come lot. out of prison. He's just come out of prison, and he pretends he's got a gammy leg. Yeah, yeah, and he goes to to live at his his brother-in-law and his sister's house but to be perfectly honest i didn't like any of the characters in no that. no i didn't didn't like peter bowles's character i didn't like george carl i didn't really like the sister the by far the most likable was the next door neighbor who's played by isla blair <laughs> so yeah it's it's odd the way sometimes you just you, you get sort of just a whole yeah. cast of people that are unlikable but just looking on his tv listings alone that's mm. a, that's that's an astonishing range yeah, of things it's from the late 50s right up and, until and i think sort of... people fixate on the posh thing yeah. don't they they yeah. just think of him for two or three parts yeah and he's done and so, there's much. so much more yeah that... yeah i mean he's in claudius for goodness sake yeah. it's not a huge part what is he what's he in he there? plays caractacus oh the ladies and the majors of the court king caractacus no. was still yeah, he's an ancient. Well, he's sort of a, uh, an ancient Briton or a sort I, of. I was doing all the actions. Really? So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just yeah. amazing. I, uh... I mean, he very much wanted to be a legitimate theatre actor, oh. by the look of it. But he sort of. I mean, he did do a lot of theatre sort of later in his career, but for a point in the sort of eighties and nineties, he got stuck as being known as a sort of television sitcom actor yeah um because one uh, uh, uh somebody at the bbc in the drama department told him that once he did to the man of ball he'd never have to do, do drama again okay because he was too well known for comedy i mean obviously that isn't correct because you can do is that the fault of producers both. or the public or both well, it's yeah. a bit of both yeah. i think yeah. Yeah. but apparently he, he did do a theater show where he played um a gangster and was absolutely terrifying <laughs> And, and, and yeah, really very it. sinister. Yeah, I can see it. But he had a bit of a run-in with, early on in his career in the 60s, he sort of met this girl and they went to this pub and this guy called him over and said, I suggest you sort of leave now. And he was like, but I've just, I've just got here, I've just got a drink. And say, no, look, that, that girl you're talking to, that's, that's I can't remember if it was Reggie or Ronnie Craze. Oh, right, oh, blame Girlfriend, me. and he's going to be here soon, so you should you should time, probably go now, go. son. Yeah. So, yeah. He very sensibly went. Left his coat behind, but he went. But yeah, just 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 going through these, I think. Oh God, we've got an awful lot of stuff to watch that he's in. So, yes. Well, looking forward to it. So yeah, be yeah. Good. He's. I mean, he's in Special Branch as yeah, well. I don't yeah. even remember that episode, but I'm guessing from the name he plays a foreigner. 
Igor, or he is plays, it Igor? Because yeah. he plays um, a lot of foreign villains yeah. uh, in things because of the way he looked. Because he was sort of tall and... Um, I suppose he, he, he's not your sort of typical sort of good-looking Red hero. Cap, Butros. Yeah. <laughs> not Butros, Butros, Gurley. I have seen that one. Have we got that? Well, yeah, so. we have got, we have got, got it. Yeah, yeah, but I sort of vaguely exists, remember that. It, yeah. So. Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's he, he did an awful lot of things. So, we, you know, the one thing you, I'm sort of taking from this if, if, is if you want to see something with Peter Bowles in, don't necessarily watch to the, the main ob- book. Yeah, don't go for the obvious stuff. Have yeah. a look at some of the other stuff, is it? But yeah, it's worth it's worth doing a little bit of digging because I think you'll be nicely surprised. Yeah, and particularly, you? you know, watch the Shadow of the Tower mm. because apart that's from available, is it? It is yeah, available yeah. on DVD. Yeah, it's well, it might be slightly harder to get now because it's it's been out for a while, but you can get it. And apart from the fact that you've got the sort of comedy episode with Peter Bowles in, you've got an absolutely cracker of an episode with Peter, oh, Peter Jeffrey. Yeah, oh yeah, as yeah. as a heretic yeah, who's going to be burned. And it's this whole subject of even though whatever happens, he's going to be burned, whether they get to save his soul or not. And we're going away from Peter Bowles, but it's a great series anyway. Anyway, there's Peter Bowles. And there is episode 62 of Around the Archives done. Yes. Dusted. Yes. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's enough. We'll yes. draw the line. So thank you to everyone for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you for everyone that's contributed and helped in in whatever way. And we'll be back at some point. Yes. I, I, as I said at the start, we seem to be vaguely quarterly yes. at the moment. Yeah, but so, um, it, maybe. Pro- maybe it, the autumn. It'll we'll probably see. be this year, but... We'll, oh, we'll <laughs> see. We don't know. But we're spreading ourselves everywhere at the we moment, are. aren't we? we? What we're not doing for this, we're doing for other Yeah, we've people, got things so. lined up in other places. Yes. So yeah, Even of recording this, we've recorded stuff for other people that hasn't come out yet. Yes. So watch out for us all over the shop. Yes. Yes. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Why? I know I am, I'm sure I am, I make why. Yes, I make why. I make why. I know I am, I'm sure I am, I make why. Oh, yes, I make why. Yes, I make why. I know I am, I'm sure I am. Yes, I make That was episode 62 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Michael Seeley, Paul Chandler and Nick Goodman. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were by Douglas Adams. And the producer was Alan J.W. Bell.